Hello and welcome to Plants and Pets, a podcast where we talk about plants, what plants are doing while we're not watching them, and sometimes also while we are watching them. I think that's what we decided our tagline was. And where I just lost the game. You, did you listen to the episode? Like, I have it in my podcast player. Yoram, do you have something you want to say? Um, we're back, is what I want to say. Nah, you have to say I just lost the game. That's the rule. Is it? I don't know. Like, Listeners, do you have anything you want to say out loud while you're walking down the street listening to our podcast, potentially in front of your colleagues and friends? <laughs> Ah, this is ah. You you told me before. Okay, now 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 I get like I know that I like I've seen in I think the decoder ring the recent episode is about yeah. The game. That's what I was listening to yesterday, and I was like, I I just need to say I and thought you I thought you were more clued up. I thought you were more culturally aware. And the second that I said I just lost the game, you would lose the game, and then you'd have to say it, and then we'd be know, stuck in the beautiful. But I only wow. know about the game by proxy from like internet culture. I I know. Off the game. That's it. I, but I it thought was like this is a nerdy internet here. thing. Yaron will know the nerdy internet thing. Yeah, but it was never played in Germany. Like it was never a thing where I know like the cultural responses. I know like maybe know now that you've become a double father, you've just like lost connection to the cool kids. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think the game is cool. The 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 podcast we're talking about is called Decoder Ring, and that's definitely an amazing podcast. That is what the cool kids are listening to. I'm, I'm fairly yeah. certain. Yeah, I mean it's not as good as our show, but it's com- it comes close. Um, <laughs> pretty good it's it's really good yeah i haven't listened to that that sh- episode yet but it's in my like next up list i i find it i, I struggle recently to listen to a lot of podcasts um not because of is the podcasts because of that, but because i think because I, of multiple children having no it's just like i i i yeah it, maybe it's that maybe it's exhaustion um it's like i don't want to do something where my brain is activated i want to do things where my brain is turned off preferably is that, is that music for you then instead of pod- like for me it's sort of somehow the opposite i want to stop my brain from thinking about things that are like work or making me anxious so listening especially to comedy podcasts is really the way to yeah. you know have to not focus on other things it kind of yeah drag me away from from whatever i'm thinking of i mean that's what i'm doing i'm listening to podcasts that are like very easy and not telling like a story where i actively have to listen and process it it's like three nerds talk about like some piece of technology where i can like if i zone out for five minutes i don't lose anything of importance mm-hmm. uh or like a comedy show or something like that where that's that's, that's not easy, this podcast guys you gotta like you gotta really listen to every I second hope you all you're have gonna... like pen and paper ready to take yep. notes because there will be a test at the end of this show um mm-hmm. and you will be graded on this. Like, this will be in the exam. This will be relevant to make it to the next episode for you. Um, yeah, how have you been in the past time? Like, I don't know. I have no sense of time anymore. It got even worse. Like, for two years now, I feel like I am in this limbo state where I have no idea if a week or six months have passed. But then last and also, I mean, two months, you're asking me. You're asking me because you're only contractually obliged to talk to me in the context of this podcast. So obviously, we haven't we haven't messaged or or chatted at all in the last two months. I mean, we have messaged a little bit. That's that is true. But we haven't like a face to face conversation like this. This is only when the contract makes me do this um, that we mm. do it. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I always have my Zoom setting so that it's it's mostly my face that I see when I'm talking to you, but. It's it's nice to hear what you believe what your belief systems are. No, I like I pretend 
that I'm not looking at myself, but I, I'm looking at it like the tiny thumbnail, like a parrot Everyone's, in a mirror. Yeah, I'm looking at Everyone's the, looking at themselves and just <laughs> admiring. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, things have been, I mean, it is like moving into autumn. I've had like a nice time enjoying all of the leaves and having friends visiting and getting to see some culture again. I went to see some plays in London, The Phantom of the Opera, which I never thought, you know, I was a strong Lemmy's nerd growing up, like when I say Lem is nerd, like, like singing every single song, having characters reenacting the thing in my living room with my cousin and my or sister. Even like, calling it Lemmy's because like, if you just call it Lemmy's, I wouldn't know what it is. <laughs> I, I read the book when I was 11. I mean, I probably didn't read it because I was 11. Let's be realistic. Um, but then obnoxiously told everybody I knew that I had read the book when I was 11. Um, and I would... I did I did speech and drama at school, which I think already made me not a cool kid. So it was kind of like this sort of acting class after school, but I wasn't in it because I could act. I was in it because I have a speech defect and that should have been corrected. Um, and when I didn't do did the exercise, that, no, I, didn't do, <laughs> I got given tapes to take home and I just didn't want to do the homework. I was like, my voice is fine. Um, and every single play we did, I was there for like six years in speech and drama, years and years. And every play I was like, the third male cousin on the left. I never got a female role and I never got a main role. Like nothing where <laughs> I had to say more than one line. Anyway, at one point we had to do some sort of evaluation and we were supposed to like read a monologue from a book and I chose a monologue from Lemmy's, which was also just... I actually remember the teacher being like, are you sure that's... Are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm definitely sure. She's like, I know, but are you, are you really sure that that's... <laughs> that's the choice you want to make with your life like 12 year old Tegan and I was like yeah that's um anyway despite all of that I really loved seeing Phantom of the Opera it was amazing and it's been really nice to what, what is the link is Phantom of the Opera sort of the the opposite of Lemis? is that like oh is it like yes, yes, ev yes. evil groups like one of them is like is it like Star Trek and Star Wars yeah I think that's maybe I, I don't know enough about that kind of nerdery to like I think that's close enough I think um yeah like Phantom of the Opera is like the Andrew Lloyd Webber and there's kind of this of like no I, I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber like I yeah, am not yeah, an that's Andrew me. Lloyd like, I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah I also thought that and then I went and I was blown away it's in it's been playing in the same theater since 1986 so before we were born and the theater is like set up they have this I mean spoiler alert at one point a chandelier falls on the stage but like a chandelier falls on the stage you know? <laughs> and it's just Everything is incredible and it was so brilliantly done that I was watching them, hoping that they would like slip up so that I could prove that it was not just being, you know, not just taped and being sort of lip synced because <laughs> it was too flawless that human beings could like sing and act and like run across the stage and dance and like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, did that, saw a like Leopold start, which was amazing. Um, yeah, so so it's got it. So like just getting back into London and and sort of doing the culture has been kind of amazing, and it's also been what I came here two years ago. I mean, obviously for the job, but also this is what I came to do. <laughs> so it's been super nice to be able to quietly re-enter the world. Oh yeah, that 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 sounds really good. Um, I mean, I'm I don't know enough about musicals too, but I I know that. Like in music class, um, we did like some Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, and I didn't like any. What did you of do? It. Cats. 
Yeah, no, I think like we like we listened to um the, like the main piece of the Phantom of the Opera. Like it was like we were talking about musicals in general and we were looking at a couple of them. I think we did like some George Gershwin stuff, sort of the early musical things that um that started in then like Andrew Lloyd Webber and then like some some other people like we did West Side Story. I don't know if West Side Story who, I don't who think wrote that's that. Him. But sort of this is sort of just the span like mainstream big musicals and Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff, whatever we listened to, whatever we did, I just could not care for it. It's like sugar-coated marshmallows dipped in, like, sugar sauce. Um, something that's just, like, makes me rich. Um, I mean, it's not, that, it's not that sugary. Like, the, the, the plot of Phantom of the Opera is about, like, a man who had a horrible, like, deformation and thus was bullied by society. And then also somehow became like some creepy grooming pedophile who lives underneath an opera and sort of stalks and grooms this young woman. It's not, it's not the happiest of stories, no, from, I would say. From, from the music, but as I said, like I don't know enough. Like to me, Andrew Lloyd Webber is the ABBA of musical world. Like people like it. I don't know what you have against ABBA. What do you I have against ABBA? ABBA? It's like thank you for the music. Thank you, ABBA. No. But <laughs> that, that goes too far. Like I'm really far out of the the area that I really have knowledge on. This is all like gut feeling. Like I I don't care for it. And I love like I. Okay, so like next time I, you come I, to London, we go to Phantom of the Opera because I was also like I am I am better than than Andrew Lloyd Webber. But then they started off with this as like boom 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 boom. This like huge starting music and like my heart just leapt. It was so <laughs> You're like, all it's so head loud now. and I mean I don't think so, but it's so Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm I'm slowly like every every year of my life that passes, I'm I'm growing more to understand what the point of musicals is. Um but yeah I I haven't reached the the level yet that I can understand what the point of Andrew Lloyd Webber is but maybe one day maybe when I when I can leave this place and go to London again safely um you can On show more me plant themed I also went to Q again so for those of you who are already annoyed that I'm talking about non-plant things for too long also <laughs> went back to Q Gardens in the autumn time bright red leaves bright orange leaves so exciting and now they're starting to put the christmas lights up so I think I'm going to go back and see the christmas at Kew gardens which is also super yeah. lovely yeah i haven't been much in nature recently to see it like i saw a little um i saw a little bit a, a fair bit of like nicely colored leaves and stuff um but apart from that yeah mostly mostly at home um doing baby stuff because i don't know if we said it already but yeah new baby busy man <laughs> because of that but it's fine yeah did you call your baby after me no, I called uh, a baby <laughs> after your what is it, like your competitor, yes, your arch nemesis. <laughs> my arch nemesis is actually a close friend. But <laughs> and did I react well to you telling me the name of no, your baby? <laughs> to the point that my spouse is very worried if we upset you deeply. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I think actually it would be super creepy if you named your child like. Tegan, Megan, Keegan, Regan. I think it would just that would yeah, actually that would make be a me terrible a name. Bit Tegan, Megan, like, Keegan, Regan. <laughs> like <laughs> just all of them together. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I think anything like that would be a little bit weird. And also, I mean, I was never successfully like gendered correctly in Germany as a Tegan. It would just be extra confusing, I think, for your child. 
Yeah, and it would also. not be pronounced correctly, not even once in Germany, I think. If we, if we I got that. a nice email where the person managed to spell my name like T-E-A-G-H-A-G-H-A-N, which somehow looked like a mixture between the, the drink and like Genghis Khan. It was like Ted Khan, which I felt really, I don't know <laughs> the, if it was like, it felt empowering, I've got to say. The, the, the Khan of tea. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's what I've been mostly doing. We had like we have a lot of good times. We had some bad times involving hospitals. Luckily, not COVID. But apparently, there's other respiratory diseases out there that can um, give a baby a hard time. But we went through that, so it's all good now. So we're gonna we're gonna give Yoram a pass now um, because he he was talking about his infant's health. So I think that's allowed. But from now on, minus ten points anytime COVID comes up. I think that's yeah. Unless there's something like scientifically relevant that we should be talking about, I think that's the new rule. <laughs> yeah, I think um, to end sort of my recap of the past, I only have like one thing that I would like to ask you as the person listening to this. Like I'm trying out Twitch, this like online game streaming thing, um, mm. because I've seen some people do like SciComm on it and I want to try out if that works. Because I, I like to try out media and stuff. And I already realized that like YouTube, for example, is super hard. And I don't have the capacity to really engage with that. But I It's hard because you have to do very like produced work for YouTube. Yeah. Is that the problem? Okay. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. by now like the standard on YouTube is so high. Like if if you do sort of YouTube on your phone out of your bedroom, it's sort of okay, but you're not going to get far with it because like the people who take it seriously they have such a high production value. They often have staff, like, for starters. Like, it seems like a one-person show, but then sometimes they say, like, oh, yeah, actually, I have, like, an editor and I have somebody who helps me write all of the of the words. And so... Yeah, and also you have that weird no-nudity thing, so that's really holding you back. Yeah, definitely. So, like, I also started doing OnlyFans for plant science. No, I'm, I'm kidding, but I want How to... How would that work? Some sort of le erotic leaf dance, I can see. I mean... OnlyFans doesn't have to be erotic. Like they try to rebrand themselves not? as like most of it is, but I think they try to rebrand re themselves as a place where you just sort of, you pay money to creators and then creators do stuff that you want to see. And most yeah, of it of is nudity, but some people also do sort of non-nudity stuff where people would like to pay for and see it. Yeah. But and it seems to be largely fueled by the fact that yeah. large capitalist corporations don't actually want to pay their employees a living wage. So... Yeah, but it's no, partially a creative outlet, but it's partially also capitalism sucking again. I don't know if you just heard that. My cat is playing the guitar. Cool. She just like, I, I don't know how she managed, but she just made the sound with the guitar. This show is just getting better and better. It's, anyway, it's like my point the is, two I months of rest have really improved our skills <laughs> yeah, in all ways. My my brain is just like a mass of mushy peas. Um, now, what I want to what I want to ask our listeners is uh, because I I just start like set up my my Twitch thing. I haven't done anything meaningful with it yet because I would like to know about games that are related to science, like plant science or science in general. Because I googled for it and you only oh, end oh, up oh, plants, plants versus zombies. Yeah, that's the one thing you always find. Oh. Um, and it's a great game, and I think it's I will also try from, that. Like two thousand and four, right? Yeah, and then a lot of it is like educational games from like some weird company is like, let's make organic chemistry fun by, oh, I don't know. Oh, I was going to say, you should do those ones where um, you have to design how to bend the the protein based on the different amino acids, or you have to like do the 3D structure. That would be, yeah. I don't know if it's really a game, but it's, yeah. it's fun adjacent, I would say. Because I want to sort of take this as a sort of starting point and talk about 
science in general or plant science or something like play the game but use that as a conversation starter but for that i have to find games that are related to that and i i did some searching and i found like one or two things that look interesting but mostly it seems like science is not really present in most games and i don't I mean, really what about believe that more... so that's why i want like if if you the listener know a game that's science related and it's not portal i love portal but it's another game than portal um please send it to me um i would love to to hear that and then try them out. And maybe at one point I will even say what my Twitch channel is. But it will probably be in German. But anyway. Um, I want to try this out. And I need some some help figuring out like what games to play, actually. Okay. Does it have to be game playing? Can you not do no, something else? No, no, you can else? do anything. Like, I, I, I was okay. also thinking about maybe reading a paper together. Sort of like pulling up an open access paper. And then reading through it sort of live. And explaining like context of a paper. Mm. Um, stuff like that. I'm still an academic paper, not like the Daily Mirror or yeah, an academic paper. I'm still f- trying to figure out what to do with this medium that's like relevant and useful. Um, because I have a feeling in about like four to five years, German science communication will all be about Twitch streaming when pre- probably <laughs> the rest of the world has moved on, and I want to be ahead of the curve <laughs> because then I can get all of the grants in four to five years. Okay. It has worked for so far for podcasting for me and also for YouTube. So I will. Yeah. <laughs> We're very slow in Germany. But anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about the plant science a little bit. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Yeah, so because we just came back this week, we thought we would give ourselves a little bit of an easy week and not go with a paper and not do our normal segments. They'll be back next week, we promise. Um, but just sort of go through some of the the things that we've been sourcing over the last two months. And realistically, I think both of us sourced things in the last two days because we're just not that organized. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I took some bookmarks, but I don't know where place them i wanted to open my bookmarks and it was just nothing but my I know method that is just to take photos of like a, a, a literal not even a screenshot like a photograph of my computer screen when i see something interesting but i take so many damn selfies so many pictures of my cat and so many put like photos of like oh look a pretty leaf that it's hundreds and thousands of pages back to actually find any of the things that have happened in the last couple of months so no idea <laughs> I found a story uh, about uh, India and specifically New Delhi, where right now they have like massive air pollution happening um, due to a number of reasons. It's like the the current weather situation plus like um, burning of fossil fuels. Then there has been like a a religious like ceremony where people burned like tons and tons of firecrackers, and so all of this like fine particulate matter is distributed in the air. Um, It's for Diwali. Uh, it could be. I'm. I'm. I'm not too knowledgeable about this, so I don't know which um, which festival it was. But apparently, like in a in a response to fight the air pollution, they're like turning off like power plants and um, trying to do all of these like systematic like large scale measures. But also, people are buying plants um, en masse to help with air po- uh, like cleaning the air and it made me look again at the topic of like can we actually clean the air with plants and we've looked at this before 
I just wanted to mention that like whenever I'm looking for research like to talk about on the podcast or the blog, I put plants into PubMed and a few of the articles are about power plants instead. And for a second there yes. I thought you'd fallen into that. So, so they're turning off the plants and that's the end of my story. I mean, to be Thank honest, you, plants done. There was it was a struggle to research this topic because I just put in like New Delhi air pollution plants and it was all like, yeah, they turned off three power plants and that mm-hmm. that was like the only like I control F in the article. It was like the only mention of plants. But I knew from like another source, like a German news source, they were like, Oh yeah, people are buying these plants, like these potted plants. Um mm-hmm. And I tried to find more about this and I, I found like one article that says like that's sort of um uh uh, a suggestion that says like how to fight the ever increasing air pollution in Delhi, and it talks about like a number of different plants that you can put into your home to help clean the air. And we talked about this in the past. I think we talked about like at least on the blog about like how, for example, spider plants, um, what capacity they have to clean the air. And when you look at the studies, the capacity is not that great. Like they sort mm. of work on a physical level that they have surface, and so stuff attaches to the surface and then is removed. So if you if air passes through a wall of plants, it just works like a physical filter would. If you would put like just like cotton fibers in the way, it would also stop particulates mm. from getting stuck there. But I found a new paper that's from 2020. It's called The Indoor Air Quality Improvement by Simple Ventilated Practice and uh, Sansevieria Trifasciata. And do you know what plant that is? Snake plant. Mother and mother in law tongue? Yeah, exactly that one. I think you gave us like a big pot of them and Doro actually mm-hmm. like my wife actually put it like divided into three and get like three whole plants out of it because it was so massive. One of the hardest things to kill, yeah. Yeah. And what they did in the study is they first of all measured the air quality in like a small indoor office for over a year as sort of the base level and then they put plants in the room because they they had the problem that in tropical regions very often you have the air condition running all summer or all year to make mm-hmm. to have bearable temperatures because humidity is high and temperature is high so it's really hard to work and so with air conditioning they uh, uh, obtain temperatures that are actually like manageable to to be productive in and to work in and um but then they often close the doors to have to to sort of put less strain on the air conditioning but if you close the doors and you're like six people in a small room the air quality gets quite bad quite quickly mm-hmm. uh, and that then again has like problematic effects on your health and well-being and so they tried to alleviate that with plants and they measured like co2 levels with these plants present um at humidity levels and they realized that uh, and temperature and they realized that putting plants sort of pretty much at every desk next to the people where they're sitting you put like these big um, mother-in-law tongue plants or um, Sanseveria trifasciata plants that you could drop the temperature through ep- evaporation from the plants. You could drop the CO2 levels because of photosynthesis um, and you had like a beneficial effect on your overall humidity in the room because the plants were sort of helping to sort of buffer the humidity. So they found that it's like very useful um, to have these plants in the room to have like a better room climate um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't. They didn't actually look at like particulate matter, like these PM two point five small yeah. dust particles, small particles that get in your yeah. lungs and cause all kinds of diseases. They didn't actually look at that. So, if you want to protect yourself from smog, from like particulates in the air, probably the the plants won't help you. But if you want to have a better room climate in a closed room while the air conditioning is running 
these plants really help. They they said like they did some like then modeling and calculations, and in ideal conditions it can have like an, an reduce the energy consumption for the air conditioning by about twenty five percent in the paper okay. they said. So quite significant, quite meaningful. Like if you imagine you need like twenty five percent less power to run your air conditioning when you have plants that is that do- just because they no longer had as much space in the office for as many people because there were so many freaking plants <laughs> no, in there was it just like a crowding same, issue where they're like the same number we of- had to remove 25 percent of the people <laughs> because we had so many sansevieras and therefore conclusion yeah i mean that that would have been a bias no um they had the same number of people but they said that like they put plants wherever they could put plants like the <laughs> They filled That's up my like, approach to life, honestly. <laughs> yeah, pretty much they teganized their little office and just like filled all empty space with plants and then they had a very good effect. But maybe there's like some middle ground there that you can where you can still have like an efficient workplace in terms of space that you have access to, but also plants in there that regulate like the CO2 levels in your room, um, the humidity and the temperature levels to a point that you're like it, I mean this talks about tropic regions, so not where mm. you and I live. But in, in these regions, that could really help um, put less load I mean, on the AC. And then if you imagine, like, if you upscale that, I mean, it's always an easy calculation. If, if a, a million <laughs> people would do this, then we could switch off, like, five power plants. Um, but, yeah, but it could have a, a larger effect if you, if you put greenery in offices that for sort of technical reasons and was, not just for well-being. Like, was there a specific reason why they, they chose the Sansevera, like... It's not a bad plant. It's easy to grow, but it's not the plant I would choose like for aesthetic reasons. Is there a specific no, I, thought about that? I, I, I couldn't find anything why they would pick this plant particularly. Um, I think it's, pop, it's, it's, it's liked because it's so hardy and like you can put it in the sun or you can put it in the shade and it doesn't mm-hmm. really care. You just have to make sure that you don't overwater it and then it will be fine. I think that's that's a reason why they they picked it, um, because mm-hmm. like it was literally standing on the floor on next to the desk where the people were working. So I imagine if you want to pick like the best place for a plant, it would be by the window. But they didn't put them by the windows; they put them where the people are that breathe out all of the carbon dioxide. So yeah, we're linking the paper and also the article talking about the best ways to clean your air. Although I would take this with a grain of salt with plants um, in the show notes. Uh, I have a story about a new species of fig. So this is the the ficus genre, um, which has got many, many plants in it, including some of our favorite houseplants, which is like um, ficus elastica, that's the rubber tree, ficus lirata, the fiddle leaf tree. So big, big, cool family, but also some, some popular friends that you might know. And they found a new species called, well, I'm not going to tell you the name because you're, if, I, if I tell you there was a new species of fig found in Australia, mm-hmm. where was it found? Or where was it found? Um, if you had to hide a fig in Australia, <laughs> where would you hide a fig? Uh, uh, somewhere in the middle. Is, do you call it a desert or yeah. like the very dry lands? Like so instead of telling you if you got that right or wrong, I'm going to tell you the name of the, the plant, which is <laughs> Ficus desertorum. Wait, wait, let me try that again. Ficus <laughs> desertorum. <laughs> so yeah, it's called the desert fig. Well done, Yoram. Ding, ding, ding. The kind of weird thing is that it was found in the desert, but it was found basically like hanging out on top of Uluru, which was previously called 
as rock. But that's what I wanted to say, but him. I didn't know what the right word for it was. Yeah, it's <laughs> literally this fig hangs around there. So although it's sort of been discovered, and I'm I'm using some little. Um, what do you call these things? Quotation marks. Quotation marks. Um, it, it has been known for a very long time. Um, it's just that it's recently been recognized to be a different species. It was previously thought to be part of like a larger um, group of plants. So it's, it's now found to be special, unique. And the name obviously comes from the fact that it is found in the desert. It's around really smack bang in the centre of Australia where there's not much in the way of greenery. Um, But one of the reasons they gave it this name is because it has been known by many different Indigenous names over over the years. So it's not like it it wasn't recognised. It has been recognised. But... There is lots of different languages in that area. So the Indigenous people of Australia, the Aboriginal people, there's not like one ling- linguistic group. There's many. So they didn't want to choose one of those names mm-hmm. because it would be then excluding um, the other names that have been given to this desert fig. But it it has been known for a long time. It's an important traditional food source for many people in Central Australia. And it's got like a lot of calcium and potassium um, in it. And as you can imagine, yeah, not so easy to find food. So I guess like this desert fig is actually quite important. Um, Do you know w- what made them figure out that it's a its own species? Was it like genetics that they looked at? Because that happens so often, right? That they took like two plants they think are the same and then they, they sequence it and they realize, oh, they're actually quite different. So I think it was actually like how it looks. So it's got much stiffer, like dark leaves than the sort of larger group and i think that was Mm -hmm. the clue and then it says that there was discussion with the first nations people so the indigenous people in that area as well but i'm not sure i think i think it did come from actually just directly looking at it as opposed to sequencing it and i do actually like that the the paper has a lot of pictures of the plant as well as a little cute picture of a bird eating a fig um <laughs> which is obviously relevant but I, I find that so frustrating when like these days like figures are quite limited often in text and sometimes there's descriptions of mutants and you don't see a photograph of the mutant and especially when the mutant has a name like club leaf or abidopsis or like you know mm-hmm. gene that makes spirally leaves number five and then there's no picture of the spirally leaves i just feel so frustrated and so, it's I mean, just like a, a- a plot of like leaf spirality uh, yes! <laughs> and then you're like but show it to me i want to see it and you just like get off like the numbers and like it has its value like- i understand it but like please journals give the authors another picture for free where they can show us the plant <laughs> i mean probably yeah i agree that like quantifying is very important as you said um and probably part of it is also that i'm not i'm not bothered to go like diving through the sops so it's probably a little bit on me um, but anyway this has lots of different pictures of the fig i want to just mention that apart from being used as a food source which is mentioned it also has a few other uses so in addition to you I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here in addition to utilization for foods the leaves of this species were used for children's games women's leaf games which i i don't know what that is but i think we're really going back to your twitch channel with the the, (laughs) no i have no idea i'm i don't want to make this a a woman male thing i'm not sure what a woman's leaf game is i don't know Uh, and also love potions which is also very exciting um yeah 
Yeah. Cool. So anyway, shout out to the desert fig, which has just come into its own by being described as its own independent species. I want to eat the desert fig now. Um, I've just watched the Bake Off final yesterday night. Um, mm -hmm. And there's like a, an Italian baker and he had, I think, two recipes where he made like a fig jam and like included fig in the thing. And it made me realize that I would really like to eat some figs now. And a desert fig sounds... Sounds good. I mean, the problem is with the paper, they do have the picture of the fig in the mouth of the bird and they have like some on the bush, but the only picture of the fig cut open is from like a desiccated sort of herbarium sample. So it doesn't look that appetizing. It actually looks more like a walnut than a fig, to be mm -hmm. honest. So I'm not feeling... And I've, I've eaten Australian native plants and apart from like the macadamia nut, which is like ultimately creamy and delicious... Most of our fruits are angry. Like they're they're bitter <laughs> in more ways than one. They don't want you eating them. They have spent a lot of energy. Like especially my side of the country, West Australia, has like no water, no nitrate, no no phosphorus, like none of the nutrients and goodness plants need to survive. And if they've managed to produce a fruit, it is not for humans to eat. They are not happy. <laughs> and they just like they're mad. And basically, you know, a few of our fruits you have to you have to make them into jams. That's kind of like you add a ton of sugar. Mm -hmm. to make yeah still i would I, i would take my chances with this one i'm always i would always like there's so many foods and we've discussed this a lot of times before but there's so many different plants that you can eat that we've never eaten i mean we just eat so few plants and even those of us who like think of ourselves as adventurous and are happy to try like the weird looking fruit you find in the supermarket that's such a small proportion like there's so so many things out there in the world that you can shove into your face and and not die from yeah and, and yeah then there's we the fact that most of them are cabbage right i mean <laughs> <laughs> Cabbages for plants and crabs for animals. That's what we've decided, right? <laughs> Cabbage deification. Uh, I have a story about chemistry um, because I think there's a, like an interesting concept in the story. So if you think about um, dyes that we use in biology, especially for microscopy, there are like, these like delicate small tubes with like often a bright fluorescent or like colored substance in there. And you put that on your sample to make some things pop up like sometimes you can track like the mitochondria in your sample sometimes you can mm -hmm. track certain like proteins in your sample and these things are often like super expensive and small and you want to be careful with them but they're crucial to your work to see stuff um but there's a researcher called luke lavis um who is sort of working at the interface between microscopy and sort of organic chemistry and they developed a new dye where they realize with like some simple modifications, they can make the fluorescence last much longer and be much brighter to make it much mm -hmm. more useful. Uh, and then they thought about like, they, they went to patent it and they were like, okay, let's sell this to a company. But then sort of low key, they told at conferences and stuff about their development. And so people asked them for some samples and they were sending out some samples. And then Luke Lavis was like, but what if we just continued to do that? just give it away for free because it's very cheap to make. Like once you have figured out how to do this, the chemistry behind it is fairly easy and cheap. You just have to like working out how to do a, a fluorescent dye and how to make it better. This can take a lot mm -hmm. of time and energy, but once you have figured it out to produce a lot of it is very cheap. So when you actually buy it from a company, what you're paying for is not the production cost, but the development cost. But in this case, like it was public funding. Like he, he got like a public grant for it to develop this. And 
So he was like, but now that we have like publicly funded the development of this die, why don't we just like give it away for free? Because it costs us almost not, nothing to make. And that's what they did. And this is a cool article that's talking about what happens then. Like, and they said like they they turned out to develop like 50 different types of dyes. They packaged over almost 12,000 different aliquots. So an aliquot is like a small tube containing a milliliter or 500 microliters or something, or even less of your dye, sent it to over 500 labs in 32 countries for free. Like they only ask for the, to pay them for shipping. And if they couldn't even do that, then they would even cover the shipping costs. And I said, like they found out, like um, they have discovered the complexities of Australian customs and how much dry ice you need to ship to South Africa. Um, mm -hmm. It's like a quote here. It has been a fun ride. There's nothing like receiving feedback that says these dyes are so bright. I'm crying at the microscope. Um, so, He's like uh, Luke Lavis himself, himself. He says like it's it sort of comes from his like Oregon hippie upbringing that he's like yeah stick it to the man like we're just doing this for free like we have the resources we're giving it away for free we're we're sharing it with the world so you have this inherent motivation there but he also says it has like a important impact on science because he says when when these dyes aren't a limited resource anymore because they're not that expensive anymore people can like try out of the box ideas and he says like they can label for example an entire animal with the dye and then look at what happens um, they can build new types of sensors um, they can try to like do time stamping on biological processes lots of things where you need a lot of this expensive dye uh, that you mm -hmm. can only do when it's not expensive and then that actually like further science and gives people the opportunity and the ideas to try out new things because like if you can just like dip your entire mouse or in our case maybe an entire plant in the dye and then dissect yeah, I feel a little it. bit bad for the mouse there yeah like do it with plants like they, yeah, they don't feel kill, anything kill the mice mouse first maybe <laughs> but then yeah you get like all of this cool new science it suddenly is only possible because some researcher decided they're not trying to make money off of the development they're just giving it back to the community for for free essentially and of course he also says in the in the in the story that this is not something you can do always do like this worked in this specific circumstances like they had the funding they had like the the manpower they used this as a training exercise for for technical assistance um to get sort of their chemical synthesis skills um oh, up to cool. par so mm -hmm. it's sort of they're training students by making more of the stuff um so you can't always do that so it's not saying that we we shouldn't buy dyes from companies anymore companies are evil for selling dyes at a high price he just says like in his case everything worked out well that this is a good opportunity and i think it's quite cool like it's something that if you are so lucky to make like a new thing and you can patent it um, maybe like see if you can set up such a system or if like monetizing it and selling it is the is the best option um, because I think both of them are like valid but I found it it's a very charming uh, short story about yeah what happens if you just give away very good molecular dyes for free that sounds really cool um, I have two stories that come from the sort of science family so one is that there was a kind of missing link of plants that has been found this came out in august i think we didn't talk about it yet though right no i don't think no no i mean sometimes no. like missing link is something that they like in the in the press releases they like to use very often so i don't know exactly but i think 
we haven't talked I, about this. I don't think they... I think I came up with this missing link <laughs> concept myself. Nobody's used that before. Um, so basically, it's just the idea that um, if we look at sort of reconstructing the timing of when like plants should have rocked up, we can get it to about 500 million years ago. Like that's what, you know, modeling backwards is like 500 million years at a time. But we haven't actually found any records, like any fossil records of plants that are that old. The earliest stuff we've found is from about 420 million years ago. So we've got this kind of gap of 80 million years. And people have always just been like, you know, it's fossils. Like you can't always find fossils. Stuff goes missing, you know, missing link stuff. <laughs> um, but now there's sort of, Something that has been found from the early Ordovician Ordovician time period, which is about 480 million years ago, so in the middle there, um, where they got spores from young embryophytes, which sort of has this continuity between like the plants, sorry, the embryophytes, like kind of the, the real plants, and what they came from, which is more algal ancestors. So they've got sort of something that seems to match in between and it suggests that there was this like evolution happening but the full development was still going and and sort of probably happened around by by about 430 million years ago so it's just kind of a new timing that uh, a new finding that puts a little bit more of a timeline on that and provides some nice evidence for plants like real plants rocking up in our world Mm -hmm. um so that's the first thing and the second thing is that there's been another advance um in science advances actually that's convenient um (laughs) which is working out how plants control which genes get passed down to their children but not so much like the genes but actually which whole entire bunch sets of chromosomes so there's this thing where if you have um hybridization so two species getting together um sometimes just like one species like it can just throw out one lot of like the entire lot of chromosomes so it just doesn't end up being a hybrid um there's some sort of incompatibility and and stuff gets chucked out and i think back in 2010 maybe there was a paper that came out in nature which showed that in arabidopsis if you change a protein which is called SENH3. So it's a protein that is found at the centromere of the chromosome. So if you imagine chromosomes look like a little X, the centromere is that point in the middle where the the sides of the X come together. So that that cross section, like X marks, like the really center bit. Um, Anyway, this protein is there. And when that's changed, Basically, it alters the ability, if you don't have that properly, it alters the ability for those entire chromosomes to get passed down to the next generation. And I think they, the original paper back in 2010 was kind of an accidental discovery because the authors were trying to alter this protein. They were trying to sort of knock it out, like get rid of it. And then they tried to cross their plants where they got rid of this with a normal Arabidopsis plant. And they just didn't get the right number of chromosomes. They got half the number mm-hmm. of chromosomes. So they didn't get them from coming from both parents in the right amount, um, which, yeah, something something had gone wrong. And you get what's called a haploid plant. So like an organism that has only half of the number of chromosomes that it should have. And yeah, this came out in Nature in 2010. Um, people have been looking into different plants, including crops, maize, wheat, and tomato. And that's because 
selectively getting rid of the genes of one parent is really, really useful if you want to do breeding things. Yeah. I mean, if you can start playing around with that, suddenly you've got a lot more control of what gets passed down um, to who. But there's been a little bit of a lack of clarity about exactly what's going on. And now this new science advances paper sort of explains a bit more the molecular mechanism. There's this alteration of this protein, and that means that it sort of ends up not being as much of the protein, sorry, on the on the central part, which weakens it, and ultimately you basically sort of lose them out. Um, yeah. It's a so, bit complex. So you lose what? You lose out like the the, the centromere bit, so like the entire chromosome gets lost. You you weaken, so you weaken the centromere. So you you weaken that central part, but then that basically ends up that there's no there's like a competition at division, and those mm -hmm. the ones that don't have the the nice healthy centromeres basically get selected. Like they they get outcompeted by the ones that like are healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, and they just sort of get eliminated. Mm, interesting, yeah. And yeah. I they kind of just like get left behind at the vision is what I'm imagining, but I I didn't study. They've got a diagram at the end of the paper to show this, and I have to say I didn't study this enough, but... Yeah, because I it thought about like, like, like there's like the, the, the little spinal apparatus that's formed and like pulling apart the chromosomes to divide them during cell division. Um and I imagine then that they just can't attach, like I, like like magnets. I'm imagining like touching, and then maybe like one end of the magnet doesn't work, and then the whole thing doesn't work. And so like the one parent yeah, is is more favored because they have the working magnets, and so they get pulled apart. Yeah, in the diagram that they've grown, it very much looks like the ones without the working magnets. It's a really nice way of putting it. They just sort of get left behind in the middle, and they don't get pulled to. So you know when you have this division things need to get pulled to either side and it looks like they just kind of get dropped in the middle um mm, cool. and over time that means yeah they're, 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 like, there's elimination it's not the, the same replication but i i don't know fully um yeah. but yeah understanding the mechanism is kind of helpful because it should have some potential for breeding theoretically like there's that that angle that's a bit sexier yeah yeah, and I, like to me, it's just like one of these things that I learned in like biology class, like just the basic thing of like the, the separation and so on. But knowing, understanding that like we don't fully understand all of the parts that interact there is pretty cool. Like mm -hmm. that there's like still like we, we've seen this like thousands of times, like in a microscope and like in, in textbooks and everywhere. But um, like that they're still like figuring out the details of it. I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, so there's this kind of like question of why we can't just, you know, get a wheat and get a barley and put them together and have wheat barley and everything just work out. And there's lots of different reasons why one species can't mate with another species. There's stuff that like comes before the fertilization, you know, there's incompatible sizes and shapes and chemical signals. But there's also stuff that happens afterwards where like theoretically you've made this this combination. You've had fertilization, you've got both genomes together and then somehow one of them still gets turfed out. And it's it's yeah. kind of amazing that this is what happens in biology. This is, you know, a yeah. process. Yeah, and understanding this really opens so many options for breeders to exploit that knowledge, right? To to fine-tune this, to increase the chances of introducing or excluding something from a parent that you want or don't want. Um, so that, that's really cool. 
I have another thing related to fossils that you were talking about. Um, I found a story about um, sort of the only the second time that we ever observed something, and um, that is the case that seeds are germinating inside the fruit. Um, which Damn is, it, I found this one. <laughs> you also found this it's one. It's so cool. Yeah, because I mean, usually like a seed germinating inside a fruit doesn't sound too exotic. Like if you think about like a tomato, a bell pepper and many like related species, like after fruit, it sort of decomposes. And from within the fruit, the seeds can germinate and sprout. Um, but My, this, mine, was, mine was the opposite. Mine was like, there's this word viviparity, which is like a young growing inside the the bit like mm-hmm. before the decay there's like a, so it's it's kind of common in animals right like your young grows inside you but then if you think about viviparity in in plants this this thing of like the strawberry plants growing out of the strawberry or the tomato plants growing out of the strawberry it's horrific to me it looks like a horror story right that's true yeah I think we even talked about this like years ago like or like several dozen episodes ago like I, I think somebody shared on twitter like images that looked like from like an alien horror body horror movie just from like seeds germinating on or inside the fruit when they were like, sort of pushing out of the skin of the tomato and it looked to us like disgusting yeah so i'm saying i'm saying it wrong. it's viviparity not viviparity but yeah go and look up viviparity tomatoes it's seriously it's the stuff of horror stories i would say also yeah yeah, also strawberries it doesn't look nice yeah but so what is so special about this um like all the plants that we talked about like tomatoes strawberries and so on they're angiosperms so sort of what we as like what is it like stuck up or like uh high notes like snobs call higher plants um and the flowering plants they're the best ones aren't they um so they do this but in gymnosperms so the non-flowering plants if you think like pines and and uh, and the like they don't do this like you don't see a pine cone that something grows out of like the pine cone when the conditions are right it sort of opens up releases its seeds and then the seeds germinate they never germinate when the pine cone is closed at least so we think or thought. Um, there's like one case in the 50s where they found like one closed pine cone that actually had germination happening and they would come out and it was like in this, I think, Siberian tundra, in like very cold conditions. So they think that the pine cone physically couldn't open because of the conditions. Um, mm-hmm. But still it was like it triggered, something triggered the germination of the seeds. So they managed to actually germinate inside the closed pine cone. But it was literally the only case where we ever observed this until now um where we found something like that and by we i say like some clever researchers where we were not involved in this um (laughs) they found like in uh in amber they found like a trapped tiny pine cone with like that's still closed with germinated seeds that like sprouted out of the pine cone and then were trapped in the amber for um a very long time did you see photos of this i couldn't get any photos i couldn't get access yeah, I thought I think on um, what what in Science Alert they have an article with pictures, um, and it's like it's very small. Like they have always a scale bar there that's like less than a millimeter. So these it's like like it's not a pine cone that you can see really see with the naked eye, but under the microscope it looks like a pine cone. And then you can I'm gonna see. be honest, it looks like an upside down flea. <laughs> yes. 
Um, but yeah, so it, it, it germinated there. And that's the second ever time that we found this. Um, and it's it's really cool. Like it helps us like to, to see that this is not completely uncommon. It's not like a complete freak of nature that this happened. Like it happened literally like millions of years ago already. Um, however, there's like a small grain of salt there. Like you can't completely rule out that they might have germinated when the amber trapped it. Like, I mean, the amber entrapment works. Like, you have, like, the, the liquid, gooey amber that drops on something, an insect, or in this case, a pine cone. Um, and then over time, it solidifies and conserves whatever's in there. But in the period between solidifying but already having entrapped the pine cone, it could have been that the pine cone could not open, but the seeds could still germinate. And so they would sort of grow into the into the amber, and then the amber would solidify, and then some people would d dig it up millions of years later, and and analyze it. So we can't rule that out completely, um, but it, but as we have seen that it can happen outside of amber, and um, in sort of in real life, uh, it could it could very well be that this is also just like um, a phenomenon can happen also in gymnosperms. Mm -hmm. So just like to to mention the reason that the plants are not doing this so common is like they they often have something that you know that the seeds are dormant or they have to have something that triggers the seeds to actually germinate and often that's you know coming in contact with soil and water and you know warmth and maybe ultimately sunlight not necessarily to germinate but you know things like this so that's usually those signals don't get inside the the cone right this is mm -hmm. the yeah mm. yeah often it sort of forms a sealed compartment where yeah moisture and light and and all of these signals can't really penetrate um and yeah and i think on an evolutionary scale like it was never necessary like the pine cones would just open and then the seeds could germinate in an opened pine cone they don't have to germinate from sort of inside of the, the, the fruit um and it only happened later with like the diversification of flowering plants that they suddenly had fruits with like skin and all of these like complicated stuff that seeds would have to break through or could break through and then germinate inside the actual thing, the actual fruit. Okay, so I have something else I want to mention. There's a publication that came out at the start of November, and it's about a genus Isoetes, specifically um, there's a species Isoetes taiwanensis, and it's an aquatic lycophyte. So I think we've talked about lycophytes before. They're kind of these plants that are very ancient. We would think of them as quite basic plants. And once upon a time, they were sort of huge, tall trees that dominated. And now they're like kind of small things. Um, these are quillworts, uh, this group. But lycopods generally include these aquatic like hollow sticky grass things do you know what i'm talking about no like i'm not too familiar with most aquatic plants like i always just imagine like the ribbons floating like the seagrass floating in, in in the water that's the only aquatic plant that i can think of okay this this one honestly looks like so the the ICTs, it looks like grass but if you look closer it looks like it's a bit crunchier that's what I would say. <laughs> Crunchy grass. <laughs> like, it looks like it's more likely to be hollow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what I found interesting is this article is looking at 
photosynthesis by the species. So basically they, um, they sequence the genome, that's the paper, but they're focusing on the fact that this species of Isoetes, which lives underwater, does photosynthesis in a different way, which is cam photosynthesis. So we have talked about this before. Like a lot of plants that we think about, they do a normal, like the basic photosynthesis, which is called C3 photosynthesis. But then there's a problem with photosynthesis, which is that the kind of most important enzyme in photosynthesis called Rubisco is supposed to basically trap carbon dioxide and turn that ultimately into carbon, you know, simple sugars. But it's a bit shit at recognizing carbon dioxide. <laughs> and like one in four times, it accidentally traps oxygen instead of carbon dioxide, which gives a whole lot of headaches for the plant because it makes something with the oxygen, which is poisonous, which takes up energy and that has to be detoxified. And it's a whole big thing. So basically plants are constantly dealing with this headache of how to make sure they don't use oxygen instead of carbon dioxide. So they find ways to concentrate carbon dioxide around this crappy enzyme Rubisco. It's a, it's a wonderful enzyme, but it's a bit defective. Um, and for that, we have something called C4 photosynthesis, which is pretty common. It's, you know, evolved, like, I don't know, I think 70 times now. It's, we're over 60 times now, like, independently evolved. And this is just a way of basically physically separating this crappy enzyme from the open air so that you can concentrate, you can take in the air from outside, you can first concentrate the carbon dioxide, you you change it into a chemical, you shift it into a different cell where this this ah. enzyme Rubisco is stored and then you release the carbon dioxide so you concentrate it around it. That's one way of doing it, the spatial separation to concentrate carbon dioxide. There's another way of doing it and that's called cam photosynthesis and that's temporal separation. Mm -hmm. So then you only let the air in during the daytime um, and then at night you do this concentration and at nighttime you re-release um, the, the carbon dioxide and that's when you, you let your crappy enzyme have the access. So instead of spatial separation, you basically temporally separate your crappy enzyme from the oxygen of the world. Mm -hmm. Anyway, <laughs> this is very important. We're super fascinated in this because um, especially C4 photosynthesizing plants seem to have an advantage in hot, dry conditions, which means that if we can make some of our, our C3 plants work more like C4 plants, we might be able to get greater production of certain really vital crops um, in a hotter, drier world. So it's a really big deal in the plant world um, how C4 photosynthesis happens. Cam photosynthesis is also really cool. Um, it's most commonly found in like cacti, but I think also things like pineapple have cam photosynthesis. And it was first discovered because some dude was walking around his garden tasting plants. And because <laughs> of, yeah, because of this is, this is what we're lacking in science. We're not allowed to taste things as much these days because of the temporal separation. This is, this is what I remember from my textbooks because of the temporal separation, like this, the way they store the carbon, like carbon itself is like acidic when you have it dissolved. So things like the plants would become sour because they were, storing this this carbon in an acidic form so he noticed that his plants tasted more or less sour depending on the time of day which just means that he wasn't just tasting the plants like he was tasting leaves multiple times throughout the day to be like hmm it's slightly more citrusy than it was earlier this morning um <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> that whole backstory is just to say that something I had never thought about is, which is really stupid, it's the fact that if you're underwater, 
you might also have problems getting enough carbon dioxide depending on how much carbon dioxide. I mean, obviously now with global warming, hooray, there's much more carbon dioxide getting dissolved into the waters. But this kind of special concentrating mechanisms can also be useful if you live in an underwater environment. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, that's probably quite obvious, but it was something that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. I mean, I, to be fair, I, like, I rarely think about aquatic plants in general, but it's true. Like you would think, like, like, like stray oxygen is much less of a problem underwater for your rubisco than it is above water, where you have like, I would have to know, like, what do we have? Twenty percent oxygen in the air, at least like more than you don't have twenty percent oxygen in the water. I think. Um, uh, so yeah, it's it's surprising that they evolved that, but. I mean, I think the thing to me is also like I this this cam this type this this day night separation of this type of photosynthesis. It's so commonly associated with cacti. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, just also, I just thought about like the guy like eating his cacti cacti and then realizing that they were like more or less acidic during the day, which is. I think I mean this is really like something I remember from high school biology, so it might be wrong. But this is the story that they told me was that this guy was walking around munching on things in his garden. Um, <laughs> but like the thing is, I I associate sorry the cam metabolism as I learned it in school is associated with dry environments. It's like desert plants, specifically cacti. And this is something that's very much not dry. It's sitting underwater. I mean, it's like swampy. But it's dealing with a slightly different problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting that they that they evolved this also underwater. Anyway, they also found that a lot of what's happening with this cam is similar to how land plants do cam, but there are also markable differences, um, which suggests that there might have been some different evolution, which is also interesting from this idea of there being different evolutionary pathways to get to CAM photosynthesis. And as I said, we, we already know that for C4, there's like 67 different ways to get there. I mean, there's 67 different times it's evolved independently. Um, so there, maybe there's there's different ways to make CAM as well, which... I think shows a certain type of brilliance from plants, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 very like purpose driven, active evolution in plants. Yeah, and so they're very very clever. <laughs> Definitely not the kind the claim I'm making, but I'm saying this is equal <laughs> or better than the crabification. Like the idea that like <laughs> like plants can ultimately get to different ways of photosynthesis that help them in, you know, dry or you know to deal with low CO two. They, I mean, is it is it better than involving a hard shell in pincers? I think you're thinking from a very human point of view, aren't you? As somebody who likes crabs and doesn't really <laughs> eat many of his cacti, unlike Keely, I think. I don't know. I would eat more cacti than I would eat crabs. I'm not a big fan of crabs to eat. So, okay, you and I have just discussed this for a little while. So it looks like it's not. <laughs> it's just the fact that like getting CO two itself is hard. It's not about the competition between the oxygen and the CO two anymore, because there's like the the ratios are much better in the water, but it's much harder to get the CO two. Still, there's more limitation um, in the water because of high diffusional resistance of water. Mm-hmm. So the CO two doesn't like to move. Two places, like 
it's harder to get it like from the water to move it into the cell where it's then put into the mm -hmm. rubisco. You can't just like suck in the air like a straw. And then also apparently there's like a lot of fluctuation throughout the day mm -hmm. in like lakes and, and pools and stuff like that. And that's also playing a role. This is also maybe why they're doing the cam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so very different like constraints and, and challenges underwater than in the air. As, as another attachment, um, Yoram and I are going down Wikipedia um, rabbit holes. I found out who the guy is. It's Benjamin Hainer, um, and he's a German botanist, and he was running around tasting his plants. I wasn't wrong. Um, in 1812, he noted that bryophyllum leaves were acidic in the morning and tasteless by afternoon. Mm-hmm. So he's taking at least two samplings of bryophyllum each day. And bryophyllum is like this um, Kalanacho, what the mother of millions, Kalancho, sorry, mother of millions plant, I think. Bryophyllum, for those of you playing at home, is this Kalancho. So you might be familiar with the, the mother of thousands or mother of million um, plants. So they're like another famous cam family although they it's have like, like a succulent right it's kind of a succulent yeah yeah it has all the babies that come in the like indents of the leaves so that's why it's called mother of thousands mm -hmm. okay yeah i tried to find a german name for it to make me more familiar with the plant but i can't find it but i've the seen german pictures and it's Kalan like quite descriptive yeah it's 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 very descriptive because it literally grows its babies on its leaves Brutblätter. Brutblätter, okay. <laughs> yeah. Does but that so just he was mean eating like that, those 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 um poor little babies and uh, he babies. was eating those and then realizing that they sometimes were acidic and sometimes they weren't. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean it's a plant research, so it's bound to be a weirdo we all are some way. I actually got into an argument with somebody the other day, not a real argument, but I was like saying, you know, this is the problem with science. When I went, when I grew up in science, like, this is the reason I didn't make any great discoveries because when I went through the lab, nobody let me taste things in the lab. All the great discoveries that I remember, like, you know, the thing of also saccharin to this fake sugar was that somebody like apparently put his finger in his mouth or his pen in his mouth mm -hmm. and was like, oh, why is my pen so sweet? Like all of the great discoveries came from people like licking their lab bench and they never let me do that. And then this person was like, yeah, but like you only heard about the ones who live to tell the tale, right? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is survivor effect 101, Tegan. I found a story uh, in the nature briefing uh, about something that's sort of, struck a chord because it's about the Max Planck Society and I used to work for um, a Max Planck Institute so I was immediately, huh, what's going on here? Um, and there have been in the past a couple of cases where directors in Max Planck Institutes which are sort of the highest ups, like a Max Planck Institute works as sort of its own compartmentalized structure and at the mm -hmm. top of it is a director and the director they have a lot of power about like the scientific direction about the way they run things about the way they treat people um, and you can already see how this can be problematic it's really cool because independence also sort of nurtures like great scientific ideas you if you're not constrained by a, a bigger system around you you might come up with cool ideas so this independence can really push people to do cool stuff but it can also mean that there's no accountability for things and in the past there were a couple of cases where um, directors were abusing their staff 
um, for a long time and it took like many people speaking up um, to actually bring the directors to sort of like justice is the wrong word I don't know if they were actually brought in front of court but they lost their positions and Max Planck Society investigated and um, like started like major changes in the way they they um, uh, was the word like they there's like mandatory workshops that leadership positions have to attend about like um, good leadership skills and there's like more ways of people to speak up and and sort of whistleblow if there's like a bad treatment. But as it turns out, like a number of these directors that were held accountable were women. And now there's an open letter from um, postdocs and PhDs saying that this is like an unfair treatment of women in leadership positions. Like they have a magnifying glass on them and their misbehavior is like pursued and attacked much more rigorously than that of male um, directors in, like with the same misbehaviors. And they're calling this like a sexist treatment of female directors in the Max Planck society according to this open letter and yeah I I don't know how do you feel about this story I feel so conflicted I feel <laughs> so there's so many strong feelings so like the first thing I want to say is I absolutely am not questioning I believe the victims of the bullying I don't think this is I I don't want this to be a discussion where we're like, oh, these people were never bullied because I honestly think that's, I believe them. I I don't, yeah. I mean, I think we should believe victims generally. I think often the number of people it takes to come out in this kind of power structure where there's so much power at the top and where speaking out literally means losing your career. I think that's such a hard thing. So I don't, I'm really anxious about this from that point of view. Um, because the the courage and and not just the courage but like the the tireless effort to make these kind of claims and to to sustain them over time is is insane um i yeah i i also don't think the max planck even so in the in the past couple of years there's been i think four demotions and three of them are women that's what it says mm-hmm. um well not even demotions charges of bullying and I was following this for a little bit and I remember one of them, they didn't get demoted. They just sort of got put on, like, they got sent away for a little bit and then they came back. That was at the time, like, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. even, they just like went on sick leave or like they had some They had to take some a break. time off. So, yeah. so I don't, I also don't think that the, the, the Max Planck Gesellschaft, the, the um, society has dealt with this very well. So there's, I have a lot of, problems I, I think i'm too i'm too close to this honestly <laughs> i i don't think they deal with things well i mean th- this even this thing in nature i was just having a quick look at it um the lo- one of the last sentences is the max planck society spokesperson told nature that the confidential investigation was neutral and objective and i'm sorry i just i'm already all of my suspicions are raised who is doing this investigation? Is it somebody external? Because if it's somebody inside the society, I'm sorry, it can't be neutral and it definitely cannot be objective. That's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So I want to separate... Like, I, I really have a problem with this power structure. I think 
we already like anybody who works in academia knows how much disparity of power there is between people who have you know a higher position a permanent position and people who don't you know phds early postdocs there's so much selective pressure and it's so easy to like just have say the wrong thing not have the right connections with person and get shut out there's a lot of fear and especially if you add things like minorities being an immigrant um you know, being a woman versus a man, there's there's so many of these issues. I think the problem with the Max Planck society system is that it gives almost ac- absolute power and trust to its directors. And if there is these problems like bullying, many other academics exist within like a university system. So if my group leader or my, my director within the university is bullying me, there is still somebody, you know, some HR person or somebody from the university who has power within the context of that university to shut that person down. It it still doesn't happen. I've definitely seen, um, I have seen personal experience again of abuse within academic systems within the university. But I do think that when you give more power and you don't have those kind of external checkpoints and controls, it's, it's scarier. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, just that's the first thing. But then we can talk about... That's, like, that's already a big thing that plays in my head. Um, But then the thing about the women, the fact that they're women. Yeah. Which is a sort of almost a different issue to me because I think this this bullying... I think the bullying is happening and I think the bullying has got to be dealt with better. Do I think that the women are more likely to get called up for bullying? Possibly, yes. I think that's definitely... I mean, we also know that traits that men have if women show the same traits they're not seen in the same light Mm -hmm. so something that a man might be do which is like brilliant and competitive and like a go-getter a woman might seem like pushy or bitchy or unsupportive these are these are things that we know are, are problems yeah um i also think so when when i was at the max planck society those top positions I looked at the numbers, 11% of them were held by women. Um, So I had a a very poor running joke that a penis was literally a magic wand that made it eight to nine times more likely that I would get a top position, which nobody found funny and everybody just found confusing, but I thought it was hilarious. And I I ran around discussing this with everybody who I would meet. I was very obnoxious about it. But... Ma'am, we just want to serve you food for lunch at the canteen. Please stop talking about the penis wand. Listen to my magic wand theory. And it's nothing dirty. It's just about me getting a permanent position. Please give me a permanent position. Um, Yeah. No, when you when you have no when you have that such an imbalanced system, and you historically have selected against a group of people who are like a minority in terms of power, if not actual numbers coming in at the PhD level, what ends up happening is you often select for only the people who most aggressively go for those roles. So mm-hmm. you also are selecting for a certain type of people, and also. Again, like I got told as a PhD, even as a postdoc, that the way to get ahead as a female scientist was to be more male, to try to make myself more dominant, to even like, you know, stand more like a man with a more dominant, like masculine stance to lower my voice. I was getting told this in like 2018, 19. Um, But yeah, if you have a system where women are overlooked, 
the only way to not over, be overlooked is not just to be brilliant. Being brilliant is not enough. You also have to be very competitive. And sometimes I'm guessing that also involves really not caring about how you hurt other people to get to the top, yeah. just really like stomping all over everyone. And and the men do it as well. I don't think it's a, a gendered thing, but I think that if you're only selecting 11% of your leaders to be, I know it's better now, but 11% in my time of your leaders to be women, like maybe check if you're selecting the best ones, like the, the yeah. actual, not the stompiest ones, because... I can stomp pretty loud and hard, but like that doesn't mean I'm great. Yeah, so I this I have so many different feelings about <laughs> no, it. But, I, but just... I fully agree. I also think it's like it's a story of of selection bias um, that you have to be like a certain cutthroat mentality gives you an advantage in this career ladder because you it's like get an uphill told to, you also get told to do it you to, yeah. you get told like don't don't fall into the trap of being too female don't be too caring don't support other people and maybe that's also yeah that's like and the again, people I'm, who, I'm not... for who this is easier to do because they have like some tendencies to be like i'm just calling it like, like who are like very harsh to to people that are working below them um for them, it's easier than to sort of adopt the male traits or like follow these these footsteps and then succeed. And that doesn't mean that all women who succeed did this, but it just increases the chances that the women who do this then end up in higher well, also, leadership I mean, positions. Just like generally, if you have to be like, I don't know, 60% better than the man doing the same job to get that position then you might not be there's not might not be the f human capacity to be 60% better without really like completely killing the people underneath you and i'm mm -hmm. not saying like not possible but i, I mean like that's how you get that 60% better you, you. Yeah. and again i am absolutely not justifying i think the bullying happened and i do not justify the actions of these bullies i it's not okay it's never okay to pass your problems down to people with less power than you and especially not to people who are under your control especially not people who are themselves already minorities of any like Stop yeah, and it. Especially Stop like justifying your needs to survive in an industry as like a reason. I've heard, I actually heard that. I heard this idea of like, well, you know, if my job is threatened, I don't have time to be supportive of other people. If you cannot do your job and also not be, <laughs> you cannot do that job. You're not suited to be a group leader if you're incapable of being a compassionate group leader. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, like the idea that being a group leader requires you just to be like the best lab scientist or the best dude at writing the papers. It's incorrect. Your job requires managing people. And if you can't manage properly, go and do a different job because you do not have the skills to have the job. And it's another thing. We do not select those jobs for people who can actually run groups. We select those jobs for people who like get the results no matter what the means. Yeah. Yeah. I think to me, to me, this like open letter and the entire situation of the Max Planck Society um, underlines like a bigger problem within within the like the the system of like who gets selected to be in these leadership positions what are the biases that bring people there and what are sort of the the side effects of that because i think like the the bullying and the bad leadership is a side effect of like a pre-selection bias of um 
of who gets to actually run a group and actually become a director uh, and it's not about like once people are in director positions if then there's like a sexism by the society against these these group leaders which might also exist like which I'm not denying like I think they also have to do, sort of work twice and three times as hard um, and any slip up is taken more seriously yeah so that's like the thing I would add is that like generally once you have this director position you've done it you've got the the permanent position and you're basically safe for life but I think there is a different standard if you're a minority because you never will stop being judged you always have to prove yourself to a height because especially again if you're only one in nine or ten of a group of people if you fail that can have repercussions for your entire gender or so mm -hmm. there's there's always it's never going to stop i mean this is this is one of the ideas of like oh you've got the permanent position you've got tenureship you can sort of relax and yeah. start thinking about you know passing down to the next generation but if you are that that minority who's being watched all the time that is a different scenario and again not justifying the action but definitely a different kind of there yeah. is a different pressure there yeah yeah, but I phew. no, I mean we 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 can't like conclusively figure this out because first of all, like I I also want to say like this is all based on like personal experiences, conversations we have with people, things that we observed. Like we, there is no good systematic systematic data on this, for example, within the Max Planck Society. I think they like they started doing surveys and stuff like that, but I think a lot of it is not public yet so we can't really discuss sort of solid numbers of representation and like like we can count how many female leaders we have but many of the things sort of the 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 softer decision factors that made people rise the ranks and make it to directorship positions like this is stuff that's based on our observation and not based on like solid like studies because they they don't exist and i just want to say that here that like nobody thinks like we have like any more data than than others on this but um yeah we can't conclusively like decide what's happening here but i think it's really it's it's really good that this is this is discussed and this is like discussed openly and it even uh old-fashioned structure like a max planck society that is sort of compartmentalized in these like small capsules of more or less absolute power of these directors that they are challenged in this structure and that they might change over time to I don't know, I have mean, more accountability. You're saying, but it's also like a weird, like it's, it's again like a weird sort of triggering thing to me. It's like, you're saying, oh, it's good that we're discussing it openly. But part of the reason this is being discussed openly is because when you have such a closed power structure like this one set up, you cannot discuss, like it cannot get resolved without going to the press. Like mm -hmm. this is how these stories have been broken is that people have finally gone to the press because they get covered up basically internally. Yeah. They don't get... The, 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 the power structure as it is is not allowing and again this happens like in lots of different places in academia it's not just the Max Planck it's not just Germany um, it's not also not, not just academia like this happens over and over again everywhere um, but yeah going to the press is what happened as a sort of last resort which is in yeah. itself a thing isn't it I mean this is yeah yeah but but to sort of end it on a slightly upward note is that like it being discussed can help to make things better. And I think we're still at far away from it being really good. But it's better than it just staying within the covered up bubble, I think. So this is like from, I think, like one of the first 
like breaking to this wasn't one of the directors like the director of the center of empathy or something yeah, i think yeah. that like it was just like the something most like psychology inf- and empathy or something like something ridiculous well just like the the juxtaposition of the title of the institute and the horrific actions that were brought to press um they, they did not match like it was it was it was so terrible yeah, I think also just if if anybody who's listening is in the situation where they are getting treated unfairly, like try to find some people to talk to, um, like try to keep yourself safe. I know it's not always possible to yeah. to solve a situation. Um, at the end of the day, your mental health is very important. Your physical health is very important. But yeah, there are, it ends. You can get out of there if necessary, hopefully. There are good bosses out there. It doesn't like academia doesn't have to be awful. It can be yeah. awesome and amazing and incredible. And like this is not. Yeah, if somebody tells t- tells you that you have to suffer as part of your academic upbringing, that's not true. Like you don't have to suffer. Like in, no. too many people suffer, but it's not that this is a necessity. Um, that you have to hate your PhD. That you have to hate your boss. All of these things are not necessary for a career in science. So um, if somebody tells you that, like, they're lying to you. Okay, so I think we've reached the end of our podcast. Sorry for the very long discussion at the end. It's something that, like, Yoram and I both feel quite strongly about for both, you know, for personal reasons as well as general academic interest, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's quite personal for both of us. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, with that I think we can say the usual stuff um, if you'd like to get in contact about, uh, um, <laughs> in contact with us about the things uh, from the show for example if you want to tell me cool games that are related to plants <laughs> or science or plant science you can reach out to us on Twitter that's at Plants for Pets there you can talk to me I'm on Facebook, which is now part of Meta, which is still awful. I'm usually more likely to be on Instagram. On either of those, you can reach out to me at Plants and Pipettes. But you are more likely to get a response if you go to Instagram. So yeah. please do consider that. Uh, we also have a website, plantsandpipettes.com. We, uh, we are taking a little bit of a slow approach to, to writing new content, but there's tons and tons of cool uh, older stuff there. And recently, uh, a very nice guest post um, that uh, a friend of ours, Chiara, published, um, and you should go and check that out. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And that's all until next week. See you later, guys. Thank you and goodbye. (laughs) 